Welcome to episode 7 of Good Grief, a podcast dedicated to having a real and honest conversation about mourning and loss. Each episode is based on a theme that we'll unpack with expert interviews, novice slice-of-life anecdotes, and where appropriate, some relevant cultural references. Full disclosure, at the beginning of 2018, I lost my mom to a very brief but brutal fight with lung cancer. She was 57, and we were incredibly close. I've been pretty lost without her. For now, this podcast is mostly a journal of my personal experience. I hope it's helpful for you because it truly has been for me. From what I've learned, this process can be excruciatingly painful alone. But I think if we take some time to share our stories and lend our ears, we can all walk away with some good grief. This week's theme, ritual. Time gringo, did anyone hear me cry that through a toilet stall divider? I swear I care. God, am I an example of a calculated birth to a star chart for clowns? I'm not. It's Christmas time in Southern California in 2003. It's nearly indistinguishable from any other time of year, save for the fact that you cannot find flip-flops for sale at Walgreens. They've been replaced by corduroy slippers lined with faux sheepskin fluff. I'm driving in my mom's white Nissan pickup with a gregarious but nervous Englishman named Simon across the cab. I'm nervous too. But he has more skin in the game. He will eventually become my stepfather and one of my best friends. He is here to spend the first of many holidays with my mother. They're in love, and he will later give up everything he has built in his 40-odd years of life, his local pub, his professional reputation as a curator in the British art world, his first edition Batman comic books, for my mom. He'll move to this tiny coastal enclave, wrought with wealthy weekenders, bathing in hot springs, buying crystals, and doing yoga. He'll be a local, a townie, his plight divided between big city alienation and small town blues. They will eventually move to Los Angeles and buy a house, and he will write screenplays and make movies about zombies. But for now, we have the holidays to tend to. In what would later prove to be a masterful move of interpersonal chess, Simon suggested that we build our own Christmas tree, an idea that struck a power chord deep within my punk rock ethos. We were now en route to buy the supplies that we would need to create what we had sketched out on a yellow legal pad an upside-down spiral comprised of a single piece of silver wire that would hang from the cottage cheese stucco ceilings of my mom's two-bedroom duplex. It was minimalist and utilitarian and elegant. Steve Jobs would have envied our tree. As we began construction, a project that I assumed would take about 30 minutes, my maximum attention span at the time, it quickly became apparent that we were much better at conceptualizing conceptual art than we were at building it. Two hours in, we'd built and destroyed five or so prototype beta trees, with each new model a new unforeseen complication that would spell disaster as the tree began to bear more and more weight. My mom would check in occasionally, doing her best not to disturb the delicate dance of male bonding taking place, while also expressing her concerns about our art project potentially ruining Christmas. Ultimately, the tree was just a catalyst for us to connect over our mutual desire to prove something to my mom, to bring some joy into her world. And for better or worse, this, air quotes, tree did the trick. So much so that one, my mom didn't want to take it down after the holidays, and two, the expectation had been set that for as long as we were together, we would be building our own trees. 
We had, in those few hours, created a new ritual that would bond us as a family for the next 15 years. Some years, the trees were more elaborate and involved months of planning. Imagine a three-tiered hanging pyramid of thin dowels bound by twine, each level draped in dozens of white wine corks. Some were less elaborate. Uh, imagine a pine-scented, tree-shaped air freshener that hung in a wooden frame on the wall. My mom didn't really go for that one, to be honest. We pitch and roll, wheels flesh and bones, little control, and it's, it's ours alone. We lean to turn in the velodrome, all lines are curved in the velodrome. We pitch and roll, wheels flesh and bones, little control, and it's, it's ours alone. In Yuval Noah Harari's book, Sapiens, A Brief History of Humankind, he suggests the following. One, humans have done pretty well for themselves. You know, plucked ourselves out of the food chain, become global alpha predators, learned how to wash our hands, etc. Two, the reason why we're able to do this was because we can cooperate flexibly in large numbers. And three, the reason why we're able to do that is because we can make believe. We have imagination, money, God, nationality, football. It all functions on our ability to share a collective belief in a completely imaginary and made-up idea. It's honestly a bit more nuanced than that, but we'll start there for now. Culture is the shared rituals and beliefs of a group of people. If you ever took an entry-level sociology class, you surely have had to memorize that definition. Culture is the places where our Venn diagram overlaps, or our ability to understand what a Venn diagram is at all. Harari's argument is that we humans have the unique ability to truly believe in things that, well, aren't real. Or maybe it's more fair to say that we are able to believe in things that there is no proof of except for our belief in them. This allows us to plan and to work together for a future that only exists in our collective imaginations. This is why we can deal with four to eight years of academia and shouldering $100,000 of debt in exchange for a very expensive piece of paper that will allow us to secure the employment needed to repay that debt. For more on this subject, just Google search the myth of Sisyphus. Ritual is the manifestation of culture. It is how we say, hey, I'm one of you. You are one of us, and we are not them. Ritual is the expression of our cultural identity. As you can see, I'm really trying to get my money's worth here on that college education. Paying for things with money, celebrating the day you were born, passing a joint to the left, these are all ritualistic behaviors. They only exist because we all do them. If we stopped recognizing the value of currency, see Venezuela, it would no longer have any value. Nations only exist in the imaginations of their citizens. As Benedict Anderson points out in his book, Imagined Communities, this is why the rise of the nation state coincided with the distribution of secular media like newspapers, TV, and for better or worse, publications like Breitbart. This is why something like America's debate over kneeling during the national anthem is so intense. For some people, the ritual of standing is so core to their national identity that to see anyone doing something different creates an internal dissonance that threatens their very idea of self.
The Cody pancake is one of the most important lessons that my mom ever taught me. Growing up, she was never a great cook. Utilitarian at best. Pasta, meatloaf, coffee. Breakfast was typically a Pop-Tart or cereal. Dinner was takeout and X-Files for me, a bag of popcorn and a Harlan Ellison novel for her. I once came home and told her I was craving the fresh tabbouleh that she used to make me, thinking that it was some kind of secret family recipe passed down from the Greek matriarchs in her family. She pointed to the cupboard and told me to look for the box from Trader Joe's. However, there was the occasional weekend morning when my mom would shoot for the moon. Bacon, eggs, and pancakes. To the soundtrack of Gin Blossoms and NPR, everything would sizzle and pop and hiss in the same butter-coated skillet. Cooking the bacon first, everything would be coated with that savory magic that you spend the rest of your weekend burping back up. The pancakes would usually come last. The viscous but clumpy, ill-mixed batter would hit the pan like a Jackson Pollock painting. Its inconsistency would lead to half of it to burn and half of it to bubble. When it was done, it would immediately be discarded into our dog Cody's bowl. This was the Cody pancake. Never intended for human consumption or, God forbid, Instagram, it was unpolished, rushed, and awkward on purpose. It took the pressure off of pancake number two and three. It was what Mark Zuckerberg meant when he said move fast and break things. It was rapid prototyping. It is why blocked writers transcribe the great words of others when they cannot find their own momentum. The Cody pancake became a way of relating to the world. It was my mom's way of showing me that doing good shit is hard, and you're likely gonna fuck it up the first few times, and that's okay. The Cody Pancake was a ritual that became symbolic for a worldview that we are imperfect, flawed beings just trying to do the best we can. So be compassionate with yourself when your first podcast or marriage or career turns into indistinguishable mush. It's supposed to do that sometimes. Riding in an Uber from the airport on my way home from LA days after my mom passed away, my phone was lighting up with texts from my coworkers. There had been an emergency meeting placed on the calendars of about a third of the people at the company, including mine. The company had experienced some pretty catastrophic revenue shortfalls during its most lucrative quarter, halting its exponential year-over-year growth. And the easiest way to rectify this from a cash flow perspective is to cut overhead costs, most commonly in the form of human capital. Translation, it was mass layoff season. I'd seen this sort of thing happen often in my career. Venture capital isn't here to make friends. I was supposed to be in that meeting, but because of my situation, I declined. As soon as I got home, he called me and let me know that one, he was very sorry for my loss, and two, I was no longer employed by his company. It was a hard call for him to make and I did my best not to punish him. In the culture of Silicon Valley startups, the ritual of the mass layoff is usually met with stoicism and indifference. The company, C-suite, and board of directors, a large, faceless entity that you can't directly place blame on, and the employee, an ambitious, highly demanded resource who will land on their feet at another high-growth tech company after they take a nice vacation on their generous severance package. However, this was not that kind of call. The company was trying to mitigate its losses as best it could, and my severance wasn't really enough to eat out on. 
As for my boss, he'd taken this one real personally. See, he'd taken the reins of the company less than a year prior. After growing a few huge brands in Silicon Valley, he didn't even need this job. It was supposed to be an ego boost, a trophy kill to hang next to his Stafford All-American rugby jersey on the mantle in his man cave. It was his strategy that had failed. His huge bet on a massive TV campaign with a multi-million dollar animated panda that ultimately cost one-third of the employees their job. As the call awkwardly wrapped up, I told him, everyone, everyone gets a Cody pancake every once in a while. And he was very confused. One of the strongest examples of the power of ritual is the placebo effect. In addition to being one of the 90s most influential industrial bands, placebo is a treatment usually in the form of a sugar pill that has no therapeutic effect, but is taken to cure some ailment. The placebo effect is what happens when people start experiencing a healing relief that can only be attributed to the ritual of taking medicine and not the medicine itself. Placebo has been proven to be more effective than surgery for curing back pain. In fact, in a 2014 study published in Science Translational Medicine, it was discovered that participants knowingly taking a placebo, literally a pill labeled placebo, found that it was 50% as effective as taking the real drug for reducing migraine pain. We associate relief with the ritual of taking medicine, and we bend reality to make it true. In the hospital, hours before my mom passed, after the Ativan had tipped her past responsiveness, after she'd made the decision to go on her own terms, my stepdad and I were in the hallway of the ICU, talking through what the next day would look like for us with her intensivist. A wiry young man, he looked impossibly tired for his age. How could he have missed the requisite number of nights of sleep to be this tired so young? Emotionally cold and not visibly empathetic, he showed clear indications of physician burnout. He told us what would happen in the most clinical way possible, each step in the procedure distancing himself a little bit further emotionally. The morphine would start at first and gradually ramp up over the course of a few hours. Every 15 minutes or so, one of the many IVs and machines keeping my mom stable would be removed. And sometime after her breathing tube was removed, her heart rate would slowly drop until it stopped entirely. My stepdad asked how long she would be able to hear us. How long should we keep talking to her? The question unexpectedly struck something inside of him, and he was suddenly uncomfortably vulnerable. You know, he answered, no one really knows. No one gets to where she is and comes back to tell us. But who's to say she can't hear it all, all the way to the end? And so we should treat her like she can because that is the right thing to do. He was saying that we should keep taking the sugar pill, even if we know it's a sugar pill, because hell, at least it's doing something. He came into her room for the last time when they removed her respirator. He oversaw the rather routine procedure and stood there for a moment looking at my mom. 
His eyes began to well up and spill over before he could leave the room. This was his last shift before a two-week vacation in Australia. The last Christmas we had together, we did not build a tree. My mom had just had a biopsy on the mass in her lung, and we were still living in that weird hopeful space where this was all just a really bad cold, or she was having a nasty reaction to the general anesthesia. We were still trying to cure cancer with Robitussin. At some point on Christmas Eve, my fiancé and I decided we were going to just buy a damn tree. We picked from the scraps left over at the local lot. We spent a little extra. It seemed like the right choice to make. We decorated it while listening to The Pogues and Bruce Springsteen and the Hipster Christmas playlist on Spotify. My mom read a book on the couch. It was warm. It was peaceful. It was nice. It was more Norman Rockwell than it was Basquiat. But as long as we were together, hell, it was Christmas. This has been episode seven of Good Grief. Thank you so much for listening. Real quick, um, you might have noticed that my voice sounds a little different this week. That's because I had a weird tongue injury. I know it's crazy. Um, I got popped in the jaw at a jujitsu seminar, and I took about a skittle-sized chunk out of the left side of my tongue, which is causing me to have a very endearing but annoying lisp. So thank you for getting through that with me. Also wanted to mention that while the strategies for coping with grief that I talk about in this podcast have worked for me, I am not a trained professional. I am just a guy with a communications degree who listens to a lot of Elliot Smith records. If you or someone you know is going through a hard time, please do not hesitate to seek the help of a professional doctor or clinician. If you like this podcast, please rate it, subscribe, and share it with your podcasty friends. If you have any questions, comments, feedback, or you're just lonely and want to talk, please reach out on Twitter and Instagram at Blake of Today, or just shoot me an email at blakeoftoday at gmail.com. If you want a transcript of this episode or any other episode, um, and also see some rad pictures of the Christmas trees that I talked about before, you can find me uh, on Medium. Just search my name, Blake Kosmeyer, K-A-S-E-M-E-I-E-R, um, and you will be able to see all of these cool pieces of media there. Real quick, if you are a music nerd like me or you like the music that is on this podcast, you should check out The Sound and the Story. It's a podcast by my friend David Callison. Each episode is a deep dive in a different album or artist, and it provides insight and context for some incredible albums. Uh, the whole thing is told through this unique perspective of David. It's like hardcore history for the Jade Tree catalog. Okay, I don't think he's actually reviewed anything on Jade Tree, but you get the point. On that note, I will leave you with the words of David Bazan, the creative force behind the band Pedro the Lion, from his song, Bad Things to Such Good People. The irony, to see my dad down on his knees, crying out to Jesus, but Lord, I've always done what's right. All the while, the good Lord smiles and looked the other way, and looked the other way. 
Take care of yourselves.